All right. Uh, This is uh, 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. Uh, It says, uh, We know that we have uh, come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, uh, love for God is truly made complete in them. Uh, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing, yet I am writing you a new command. Uh, its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing uh, to, there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Uh, but anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. How can we know truth? How can we be certain of fact in reality in the world? I realize this is a little bit of a philosophical question for a Sunday night, and maybe you have or haven't really thought about it before. But how can we know if something is true? Well, there are quite a few methods or tests to know whether something is true. Uh, The first one, and perhaps most obvious, is just through our own human experience. I can see that the colour of my shirt is blue. I know if I punch a wall, my hand will hurt afterwards. I know that I will get hungry at six o'clock. We can kind of just know stuff about life from our past experience. Another uh, way of determining truth is just through mathematical logic. One plus one equals two. The circumference of a circle is two pi r. The sum of interior angles in a triangle is always equal to 180. (laughs) Yeah, we got through it. You can tell that my wife's a maths teacher, right? But we can kind of just know things to be true uh, through logic, through things like maths. And similarly related, there's the scientific method. You can use a set of steps that determine facts through testing and experimentation. You use tangible evidence or clear signs to prove that something is true and accurate. Yeah, there we go. Now, these things have merit and value in their own area, but what about when it comes to the realm of spiritual matters? How can we know things to be true about matters of faith and about God? How can we know things um, to be true about those? Last week, we looked at the start of 1 John and what it means to have fellowship with God. But now... uh, Uh, we look at 1 John 2, and he he asks this sort of question of, how can we know whether we have fellowship with God? Can we really have assurance that we have fellowship with him? 
Is there some sort of scientific test or a clear sign that shows whether someone has fellowship with God? These are the questions that our passage tonight seeks to answer. John wants his readers to know that they can have full assurance. They can be certain about the things they believe. How can we know whether we have fellowship with God? Well, John gives us three signs that demonstrate whether someone has fellowship with God. It's written on your outline, uh, so let's dive into the passage together uh, and tackle each one. Uh, A bit of context uh, to help us understand where we are in this letter. Uh, Last week, we saw that John is an eyewitness to Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of life, who came in the flesh to preach the good news of the gospel, salvation for sin through Jesus' death and resurrection. And John wants people to know that we have fellowship with him and with Jesus, but that cannot happen while people still walk in darkness. Verse 6 of chapter 1 says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Someone cannot have fellowship with Jesus, claim to be a follower of him, if they continue to live in unrepentant sin. And so John shows us what it looks like to not have fellowship with Jesus. A little bit further on, uh, in verse 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And verse 10, if we claim uh, we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And verse 9 in the middle shows us then what it looks like to be forgiven by God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's kind of like a litmus test that you do in science. You've got a liquid and you want to test whether it's an acid or an alkali or a base. And you've got a special bit of paper that you can dip into the liquid and you pull it out and it turns a different colour and it shows what the liquid actually is. If someone claims to be without sin, claims to be perfect in every way, well, you can dip that little bit of paper in their heart, you can pull it out and you say, aha, they don't believe the gospel. They don't believe God. Their confession of being without sin is an outward reflection, an outward sign of what they believe on the inside, that they do not believe God. That's what it looks like to not have fellowship with Jesus. But John assures us that we can have fellowship with Christ and with God. Look at the start of 1 John 2 verse 3. It says, we know that we have come to know him. The simple and yet profound truth is that we can truly come to know who God is. God is not distant or elusive from us. No, we can be in an intimate and personal relationship with the God who created the universe. In Islam, Allah, God, is distant and impersonal. The Quran describes God as a transcendent being who can have no contact with the earthly, with humans. To Islam, the belief that Jesus the Son of God, could come down both as God and man, is a terrible blasphemy. And so they reject the idea of the incarnation, and they reject and deny that Jesus is God. But for Christians, we know that not only did God come down and add humanity to himself by sending Jesus to live as the perfect human, but Jesus himself invites us to have a close and personal relationship with God, even going as far as enabling us to call him our Father when he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11. It's a glorious truth that we can come to know intimately who God is 
and what he is like. So, we know what it looks like to not have fellowship with Jesus and with God, but we know that it is possible. We can come to know the true and living God, but how can we be sure that we ourselves know who he is? What is the litmus test for us having fellowship with him? Well, this is where the rest of our passage uh, picks up as it expands on this idea of having fellowship with God, but it looks at it from the opposite direction from what we saw before in 1 John 1. We now see what it looks like to have fellowship with God, and we get our first sign that attests to that reality. How can we be sure that we know God? Well, the answer is simple. If you know God, you will keep his commands. It comes at the end of verse um, 3. We know that we have come to know him, God, if we keep his commands. See, when someone fully realizes and understands the authority of God, there is no other option but to submit to him. When we see God as our creator, as the God who authored our salvation from sin, as the God who sustains all things on heaven and on earth, Christians cannot do anything else but acknowledge that he is Lord and then live in line with that reality. As the um, end of verse 5 into verse 6 says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to be in him must live as Jesus did. If we claim to know God, we will live as Jesus did. We will strive with every breath to follow his example, to love and obey God. And in doing that, it shows that we too really know who God is. And therefore, the opposite is true in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what his commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. It's clear that someone doesn't know God if they don't follow his commands. A person who doesn't understand God's authority and lordship will not live in line with what he has said. And if someone claims to still know God, but totally reject his law, or pick and choose which commands they want to follow or which to ignore, based entirely on what they think or feel, well, this passage says they're a liar. They're kidding themselves. They've put themselves in the place of God and they truly do not know him. Imagine you're on a sporting team and your coach says to you, all right, when you get the ball, make sure you run to the other end of the field and you score a goal. But when you do get the ball, you decide that being ruled by your coach is too restrictive, too oppressive. And actually, you know how to play the game way better than he does. And so what do you do? You run to the complete opposite end of the field and you score a goal for the opposing team. Not good. It shows that you don't actually understand or recognize the authority of your coach. When he says, run that way, you do it. When he says, defend that player, you do it. And when you deliberately decide to go against your coach because you think you know what's best, well, your coach will just beat you off the team because you have acted as if you do not know him, that you do not care about his authority. And so, verse 5, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. When we follow God's commands, it shows that we truly do love God. And in fact, it's a clear marker of the Christian life is when we grow in our love, joy, and delight to submit, to follow to the laws and commands of God. Christians don't go on complaining about how following God is so burdensome and restrictive or that God takes all the fun out of life. No, being a Christian by definition requires a complete reorientation of how we view God, ourselves, and the world around us. 
It acknowledges that our sinful self is actually harmful, both to ourselves and others. And when we truly realize that, well, then we don't want to live that way anymore. Instead, we long to live the way our Creator intended us to, following His laws, which are good and right and proper. When we obey God's commands and grow in our joy in following Him, so too do we grow in our love for God. And thus, love for Him is made complete in us. We've seen that people can have this assurance that they know God, and we express that reality by following His commands and growing in our love and joy to do so. But that's quite a broad notion. Follow God and love, um, and love him. Uh, but what does that actually look like in the life of a believer? Well, John moves what is a, a general, overarching sign of faith to a specific sign of what that looks like in practice. Sign number two, we see it in verse nine. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. But before John unpacks what it means, he establishes that this command is both old and new. Verses 7 and 8, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. So, is it old or is it new? Well, it's kind of like buying a second-hand car. When you buy a second-hand car, what do you say to your friends? I, oh, hey, I bought a new car or an old car. Well, it's old because it's second-hand, it's used. But it's new to you. You didn't have it before and now you do. It's both old and new at the same time. And so when John says this command uh, to love one another is old, I think he's referencing Jesus' words in the gospel, specifically in John 13, uh, uh, verse 34. A new command I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This command to love one another is old because they've had it since the beginning of when they heard the gospel. End of verse 7. Uh, this old command is the message you have heard. But then verse 8 goes on to say, Yet I am writing you a new command. Uh, it's new in the sense that Jesus has redefined what it means to love one another. He's taken it to its maximum application. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19 verse 18, God commands, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Before Jesus, the standard of how we loved others was measured by how we loved. But when Jesus spoke in John 13, he steps it up a notch. We now love others as Jesus has loved us ultimately displayed on his sacrifice on the cross. John goes on to say in verse 8, its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Jesus coming into the world was the start of God's promised kingdom. Uh, it means that we are in the last days before he returns. So just in case Christians didn't have enough motivation to love God and to love neighbor, through Christ's example, we can live as Jesus did because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The last day is here. And so John urges his readers to live in light of it. And now John gets to the point of this command, the specific sign that shows whether someone is in the light. 
When the someone has fellowship with Jesus, verses 9 to 11, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. There is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. You'll notice that this theme of light and darkness keeps coming up in John's letters. But his point here is pretty self-explanatory. If someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, they must and will love brother or sister. And if someone claims to be a Christian, but instead goes hating their fellow believer, well, then it shows that they don't really follow Jesus at all. Whether someone loves or hates a brother or sister is a clear sign to whether someone follows Jesus or not. You know, straight away, when you're talking to a fake fan of something, right? When someone says they're super into this thing, but then you start talking to them about it, and it's blatantly obvious, they have no idea what they're talking about. Because they're not actually like it, they're not into it. For me, I'm not a sports person. It's just not my thing, I don't get it. But, lots of my friends here, hugely into cricket. And so, it'd be very easy for me to say, oh yeah, I love cricket. Cricket's the best, but in reality, I know nothing about cricket and I care even less. So if someone comes up to me and says, oh, Lachlan, did you catch the cricket game last night? My response would probably be something along the lines of, oh, yeah, all those tries and holes in one and, whoa, that, that was just crazy. Remember the, the time at the place with the thing? Whoa, that was, whew, that was nuts. Benji Marshall, he's going to have a good season this year in the cricket. It's very obvious I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to cricket. Uh, if I said I liked cricket and truly believed that I liked cricket, you would expect me to know the rules, to watch the game, keep up with all the players, maybe even play a bit of BBL fantasy. Otherwise, I'm a liar. I'm a hypocrite. And the same is true of following Jesus. If I claim to be a follower of Jesus, but I don't obey God, I don't love others like Jesus did, and in fact, I go on hating my brothers and sisters, well, do I really follow Christ? It calls into question whether I even know God. Jesus loved us when we were still sinners, so why would we not show that same love to others? And if we don't, well, it's like we're still stumbling around in the darkness. Verse 11 says, But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. It's basically impossible to do anything in the dark. Have you ever tried doing basic household chores in utter darkness? It might have good legs as a game show idea, but it's practically impossible to do anything successfully when you can't see. You're, when you're in pitch blackness, you're stuck. You're useless. You can't do anything for yourself. You stumble around, incapacitated by the darkness. And that's what we are like if we go on hating a brother or sister. If we don't follow Jesus' example, it's as if we're still stuck in sin walking around in the darkness and unable to do anything for ourselves. But, verse 10, anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. There is nothing in them to make them stumble. If we know and follow Jesus, we can live in the light. And why would we not? We already know that we are in the last day. The darkness is passing. The light is here. Why live like we are still in sin? It just doesn't make sense. How do we know if we have fellowship with God? We obey his commands and we love others as Jesus loved us. It's a clear sign that someone 
follows Jesus and has fellowship with God. Now, when John was writing this letter, he could have just stopped there. You can have fellowship with God if you obey his commands and love others. The end. Full stop. Sermon over. If he did, then we could be very easily tempted to think that the responsibility is all on us to do good deeds on our own, which gain favour with God. But that leaves us with a faith built on salvation by works, falling into legalism and moralism. We're no better than the Pharisees that Jesus vehemently opposed. And so, praise God, John didn't stop there. We get to this rather strange couple of verses that is distinctly different from the rest of the book. And it clearly divides the themes of the first half of the book in comparison to the second half. It gives our third and final sign that shows whether we can have fellowship with God. It was a sign that was clearly displayed on a Roman cross for all to see as Jesus died for our sin and secured our salvation. Verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Right off the bat, we notice that John, for some reason, sees fit to specifically address children, fathers, and young men in this section. However, it's clear that these statements are not exclusively true to those whom they are addressed to, but they are generally true and applicable to the whole church. At the start of chapter 2, verse 1, John says, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So it's not just children who are forgiven, as verse 12 uh, might suggest at face value, but it's anyone who confesses faith in Jesus' sacrifice. And again, in verses 4 to 5 of chapter 2, whoever says, I know him, and if anyone obeys his word, well, then we can know God, who is from the beginning. That's not just true of fathers. And so we see that these precious statements are true for every Christian. All people who follow Jesus have had their sins forgiven. They can know the Father, and they have overcome the evil one. Notice, too, that each of these encouragements that John writes is specifically linked to other concerns and parts of his letter. Uh, in, at the start of chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But... I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, uh, whoever, believes, uh, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But I am writing to you, fathers, because you do know him who is from the beginning. And chapter 3, verse 8 uh, says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. John wants there to be absolutely no doubt in our minds that Jesus has done everything needed for salvation. Our sins have been forgiven. We do know the Father, and we have overcome the evil one, all through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. And John basically repeats these statements twice, because when you want something important to sink in, you repeat it. When you want something important to sink in, you repeat it. 
And when you want something important to say, you get the point, right? John wants us to know that we already have this assurance, this fellowship with God. The sign is in what Jesus has already done for us at the cross. And so within this section, we see a tension between these two underlying ideas that both answer the question, how can we know whether we have fellowship with God? Verses 3 to 11 gives us good and godly signs that attest and reveal whether we truly have fellowship with Christ. Do we know and acknowledge God by obeying his commands? Are we loving and living as Jesus did and loved us? In summary, are we concerned about godly living? Because if we're not, well, we're in danger of lying to ourselves and still stumbling around in the darkness of our sin. But from the other perspective, verses, um, John gives full assurance in verses 12 to 14 that if you trust in Christ, then you have been forgiven. You do know God and you have overcome the evil one. Both are 100% true. And the hard thing is we can't overemphasize one over the other. On the one hand, someone can become too fixated on the works and outward signs that prove they're a Christian. Am I reading the Bible enough? Am I praying enough? Have I converted enough people? Am I evangelizing enough? The issue is not asking those questions specifically, but the attitude behind it. If we become too self-centered and concerned about what we do, the good works and the good deeds that we do, we lose sight of the glorious assurance that Jesus has already done and won our salvation. There is nothing we need to do to contribute to it. Or, on the flip side, someone can look at that assurance uh, of forgiveness but neglect letting that truth impact how they obey God's command. They neglect letting Jesus' love for them affect how they love and treat other people. And so holding these truths as equally as important is the key part of this whole section. It's the key point. How can we know whether we have fellowship with God? We can have full assurance through Jesus' work on the cross and our concern for godly living. God has given these signs to attest that we know and have fellowship with him. Jesus' death has fully secured our salvation and our concern for godly living confirms that we continue to acknowledge it. We can't have one without the other. And actually, I think our church mission statement expresses this idea really, really well. It's like Jono put lots of thought and effort into it or something. But the church mission statement for Grace Anglican is that we live in and live out God's grace. We live in the assurance that Jesus has paid the price for our sin and that we are forgiven if we trust in him. And we now live out that grace by living in line with God's command by sharing his grace to others, which includes loving our brothers and sisters as Christ has loved us. And so the implication is quite simple. It's drawn from these two ideas. Firstly, do you have full assurance that you have fellowship with God through Jesus' work on the cross? We've seen that we can have a close and personal relationship with God. We can know who he is. Even though we have rejected God, Jesus has done everything we need to be in relationship with him. And if you are, and, and so, are you fully resting on Christ's salvation? Deep down, do you think that you can contribute just, just a little bit to make God feel more favorable towards you? That by doing some good deed, or maybe not doing some particular sin, that that will just push you over the line into heaven? 
God has, uh, Jesus has bridged the gap. I just need to take the first step across. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian for. I think our old sinful nature can still tempt us to not fully trust in what Jesus has done for us. We need to keep coming back to the Bible. Keep coming back to God's word to remind us of the glorious assurance that we have in Christ. To fully forgive our sins and enable true fellowship with God. If you're not sure um, whether you have this assurance for yourself, or you want to find out more about what this means, talk to Jono, talk to Ben, talk to any Christian in this room or that you know, they would love nothing more than to chat about it with you. And secondly, are you a fake fan? If you know the assurance of your fellowship with God, does your life and actions reflect that you continue to live it out? Or are you living a lie, acting like a hypocrite, still in the darkness? Would your family know that you're a Christian by your words and actions? Your friends, your co-workers? God's word calls us to live as Jesus did. Because the reality is, if you don't fully submit to God's law or love others, it could be a sign that you don't even know him. So are you growing in your delight to follow and submit to God's commands? How are you going at practically loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you praying for your church family? Are you able to serve them in some small way at church? Are you looking to talk to the newcomer after church or someone who you don't know as well? Loving our brothers and sisters starts at church. It's where we gather. It's where we hear God's word. It's where we do life together. If we follow Jesus, we need to love and live as he did. How can we know that we have assurance that we have fellowship with God? We can have full assurance through Jesus' work on the cross and through our concern for godly living that confirms we continue to live it out. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do have full assurance in what Jesus has done for us at the cross. That we can know that our sins are forgiven. That we do know you, our Father, and that we have overcome the evil one. Lord, help us cling on to that assurance no matter what. Help us keep coming back to the Bible, coming back to your word, and being thankful and joyful for the fact that you have done everything needed to be in relationship with you. And Lord, as we go out this week, help us to live out that truth. Help us to live out that reality. Help us not be a fake fan of Jesus, but to live in line with your word, to delight to do so, and to love others as Jesus has loved us. Lord, help us to do these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.